Last week on my day off, I had a rare and precious meeting by Zoom with three of my closest friends from high school in England. No matter our distance and the many years since school, we've all stayed in touch and supported one another through life's challenges and joys. We all settled in on Zoom with our cups of tea in hand for a two hour conversation to share all that was going on in our lives. And at one point I expressed my great relief at living under a more compassionate administration here now in the States, one that aligns with our values. And I shared how glad I was that the dizzy days of daily drama and cruelty were seemingly behind us. And to my great surprise, one of my friends, the one I've had the least contact with over the years, but who's been living in New York, told us that she completely disagrees with me. I was floored. I'd always thought that all four of us were on the same page politically and that this was a safe space in which we could talk about these matters, knowing we all agreed. Instead, she shared her opinion on the situation, which was 180 degrees different from mine. It was almost as though we lived in different realities these past few years. We had opposite understandings of what was occurring in this country. And it turns out her husband is an ardent Trump supporter. So she started listing all the good he'd done in office over the last four years. I was dumbfounded. After she'd shared for a while, the conversation became awkward. And another one of our friends got busy trying to mediate. And I looked for ways to change the subject. But when I did that, she felt I was canceling her and not staying in dialogue. But I didn't want to argue alternative facts or try and persuade her to change her mind. That's not where I was at in the moment and it's not my nature. I was longing for connection, yet felt this chasm open up between us. And I wasn't prepared for that. I, was a little heartbroken to be honest, but I was also just disturbed by it. And I wasn't sure how to really bridge this situation well. So we ended the call not long after. I came away stunned and saddened and thought about our interaction for days later. Here I was in what I assumed was a safe space, a beloved community only to find that we had some major disagreements in our respective worldviews. In fact, I was so taken aback, I wasn't able to be non-reactive or reach across and try and build bridges in the moment. Instead, I was a little like a deer in headlights and I felt like I'd failed. It was a great lesson for me to witness how difficult it can be to stay in dialogue over huge ideological differences, even with a close friend. I love how the universe always seems to give me perfect lessons just before I have to preach on a subject. Until last weekend, it was easier to brush off supporters of opposing political views. I thought they'd obviously been brainwashed or lied to. Clearly, they didn't understand the gravity of the situation. I was deep into us versus them thinking. But they aren't all brainwashed. These are our friends, our neighbors, our parents, our children, our spouses and people all around us. And not every one of them is brainwashed. These are people we love or have known all of our lives. Folks we've formed long-term relationships with who have differing views. 
And if we want these relationships to continue, we need to be able to see beyond this difference, beyond opposing political beliefs and beyond contrasting values, cultures and lifestyles. So how do we stay in relationship, even when we see the world in such different ways, when we feel so far apart? Indeed, is it worth staying in relationship when there seems to be such a divide around the important values in life? Why do the hard work of beloved community? It's much easier to shut down, put up walls and pull away from someone with whom we differ or with whom we've had an argument. Everything in our media and culture is pushing us to take sides, to belong to one side or the other and shun others. And if I'm honest, my survival instinct was calculating ways to not have her be part of the ongoing group gatherings. Why stay in relationship? One of my colleagues, Reverend Victoria Stafford says, the goal of beloved community is reconciliation, not to destroy your opponent nor cast them out, but to stay in the struggle till love wins. Till love wins. Whew, that sounds hard. Stay in the struggle until love wins. Well, I am committed to love. So as I meditated on this, I came to the conclusion that each time we shut someone out, push them away or reject them because of their differing approach to life, we actually shut off a part of our own humanity. We close down our compassion, our ability to love. Now, it may seem easier on the surface to push people away or ignore them or get angry, but ultimately we're closing our hearts and barricading them behind walls of judgment. And that makes us less available to love in life, to experience joy, belonging, and aliveness. We cease being whole human beings as we dismember that which we don't want to deal with. Rather than acknowledging the messiness of our differences, the complexity of life's shadow side. And the shadow lives in every one of us in different ways. There, but for the grace of God, go I. So who am I to judge another? Now, I'm not saying we should accept or condone violence, hatred, or oppression. We can love another human, but not condone their behavior. We can respect someone's inherent worth and dignity without excusing their actions. But we also need to be honest about our own capacity for cruelty, evil, and harm. It's a capacity we all have within us. So perhaps beloved community in its most realistic form is where we can accept one another, warts and all, across difference and shadow, and stay engaged, open-hearted and caring for one another as fellow humans, despite what separates us. In fact, I heard a report on what to do if one of your family members has been taken in by the QAnon conspiracy. The only thing that may work, they say, is to love them, to show unconditional love. There is no arguing people out of their views. 
during some of our small groups this week, we talked about what beloved community means to us. And many of us thought that it means a community like this, our beloved chalice congregation, simply a place where people are close, connected, and care for each other throughout life, where many of us see the world through a similar lens and feel like-minded a community in which we share and live by a covenant of right relations and treat each other with kindness and respect. And certainly, beloved community is that, but it's also more. It's a community in which we're willing to confront difference, hard times, discord, and anything that tears us apart and still stay in relationship still come back to the table. It's not about being comfortable and avoiding conflict. Rather, it's a place where you're nurtured, sustained, and challenged. Beloved community asks us to have enough respect for another human being that we don't turn away in the face of difference or conflict. Instead, we seek to find our commonalities, our bridges and places of shared understanding. It's about embracing difference and honoring it. But boy, as I experienced, that can be really challenging. Beloved community dares us to look at humanity as a whole, as one, as opposed to dividing us into irreconcilable groups disconnected by race, by nationality, by gender, politics, or religion. It calls us to look beyond what separates us and find what unites us beneath those differences. It's when we actively want the best for everyone in our families, our neighborhoods, our communities, our country, and our world. In fact, beloved community is a world in which Ayana doesn't need to be concerned about where she moves, knowing that she's going to be embraced as a fellow beloved human wherever she goes a world in which our first principle as Unitarian Universalists, the inherent worth and dignity of all human beings is truly lived into. Beloved community was Reverend Dr. Martin Luther King's vision for the world. But the term was first coined by philosopher, theologian, Josiah Royce, who helped found the Fellowship of Reconciliation which is an interfaith peace and justice organization, which Dr. King later joined. Royce criticized the individualism of our Unitarian forefather, Ralph Waldo Emerson, saying, my life means nothing, either theoretically or practically, unless I am a member of a community. He thought of a beloved community as a group dedicated to the cause of loyalty, truth, and reality itself. And Dr. King took this idea further and envisioned the beloved community as a society based on justice, equal opportunity for all, and love of one's fellow human beings. As explained by the King Center, which was founded by Coretta Scott King to further the goals of her husband, Dr. King's beloved community is a global vision in which all people can share in the wealth of the earth. In the beloved community, poverty, hunger, and homelessness will not be tolerated because international standards of human decency will not allow it. 
racism and all forms of discrimination, bigotry and prejudice will be replaced by an all-inclusive spirit of sisterhood and brotherhood. And if Martin Luther King had lived today, I'm sure he would have said personhood. The Boundless Love Project, whose mission is to peacefully create a global beloved community where all life thrives, believes it's a practical, realistic, realistic and achievable society. Though conflict still exists, it is resolved peacefully, non-violently and without hostility, ill will or resentment. And the Boundless Love Project invites us on their website to take the Be Love Pledge. And I encourage you to check it out and sign it if you feel moved. I have, and I'll share the link later. Of course, Jesus also promoted a vision of the beloved community. He called us to love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. Love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. Jesus, Dr. King and the Boundless Love Project paint a beautiful vision of a world most of us would want to live in. But as we know only too well, these ideals aren't always easy to live out. So for those of you who joined us in our community forum on Friday about protecting youth from online hate, we saw very vividly how many are working for the opposite to foment hate in our world. Our fallible humanness, our reactivity, our survival instinct, our greed, and above all, our fear, erect barriers to becoming a beloved community. The poet and activist, Bell Hooks, whom I had the pleasure of meeting a few years ago said, beloved community is formed not by the eradication of difference, but by its affirmation, by each of us claiming the identities and cultural legacies that shape who we are and how we live in the world. But beyond claiming our identities, I believe we also need some practical spiritual strategies to help us build the beloved community. First of all, I think we need to look at beloved community as a verb, not a noun. And that's why I call this sermon Becoming Beloved Community. It's a continually unfolding process and possibility, one that we need to work at always. It's not a reality that just exists one day. So how do we work on it? What are some strategies that help us become beloved community? Well, the first one is one that civil rights lawyer and founder of the Equal Justice Initiative, Brian Stevenson, recommends. And if you've read his book, Just Mercy, or seen the movie, you'll be familiar with this. He encourages us to get proximate. Get out of our echo chambers and become proximate with those who are different. Get to know people of diverse socioeconomic status, other races, cultures, religions, and even political beliefs. And then don't judge them, but imagine what it is to walk in their shoes and listen. The writer Sabine Selassie, a self-proclaimed nerdy black immigrant tomboy Buddhist weirdo, that's how she describes herself, just came out with an extraordinary book called You Belong. And in it, she recalls how she used to be really angry all the time during the George W. Bush years. 
she was outraged by so many things he did. She'd show up at protests and fight all that was happening during his presidency. Sound familiar to anyone? Well, one day, one of her Buddhist teachers suggested that she hold George W. Bush in her daily metta meditation and send him loving kindness. And at first, this was really challenging for her. But over a period of months, she started imagining him first as a baby and then visualizing what it was like to grow up in his family with his siblings and his circumstances and their worldview. And over time, she built a deeper picture of this man, which made her realize that had she grown up this way, she would have turned into him. She recognized that she could no longer feel superior to him or judge him because had she lived his life, she would have thought his thoughts and made his decisions and been like him. In feeling separate from someone, especially someone with whom I disagree, she writes, there's a lack of care or connection to their experience. And that separation can lead to the arrogance of assuming I do not belong to them and even that I am somehow better than them. So get proximate, both in reality, but also in your spiritual practices. And then as we get proximate, we need to get curious. What's it like to be the other? How did they arrive at their viewpoints? What's driving them to be this way? What's important to them? And this is where we get to use our imaginations that we spent all month last month developing. The Sikh activist and civil rights attorney Valerie Carr recommends that we see people who are different to us through her see no stranger strategy. Remembering our fundamental interconnectedness, Cower invites us to say to ourselves, you are a part of me I do not know yet. You are a part of me I do not know yet. If we practice being curious, we can be open to that unknown part of ourselves in another. So once we're proximate and curious about another, it's important to stay engaged, stay in the room. Don't run from difficulty as I was so tempted to do. Few of us enjoy conflict, but beloved community asks us to stay engaged, even when the going gets tough. Now, I don't know about you, but I've never really enjoyed conflict. So remaining engaged through conflict and difference can be really challenging. I have to keep reminding myself of my values of love and connection, which require me to stay engaged if I'm to walk my talk. Also, it helps to value relationship over being right. Oh, this is a hard one. But it's a mighty useful tool in marriage and in parenting too, let alone with a friend with whom you have opposing beliefs. If we're committed to being right, or even to being on the right side of things, or having the right facts, then we are to maintaining our relationship with a fellow human being. We're very unlikely to build beloved community. So allowing room for another's perspective, holding it alongside ours in importance, lets us remain connected. Which brings me 
to acceptance. If we're committed to relationship, can we stretch our hearts to accept our differing views without needing to change them? We accept another because of our values of peace and love. And this is what Dr. King was talking about. He knew we'd continue to have conflict and differing perspectives, but that ultimately, if we respected and honored one another through a spirit of friendship, cooperation, and goodwill, we could build the beloved community. Above all, though, King fundamentally challenged us to love using what Ayana shared with us earlier, agape love. In 1957, Dr. King said, it is agape, which is understanding goodwill for all people. It is an overflowing love, which seeks nothing in return. It doesn't begin by discriminating between worthy and unworthy people. It begins by loving others for their sakes and makes no distinction between a friend and enemy. It is directed toward both. It is this type of spirit and this type of love, he says, that can transform opposers into friends. It is love seeking to preserve and create community. It is the love of God working in the lives of men. This is the love that may well be the salvation of our civilization. My friends, beloved community, becoming beloved community is a lifetime's work. It's by no means easy, but it's an aspiration and a worthy one that dovetails beautifully with our seven principles as Unitarian Universalists. It is steeped in the idea of covenant, which we hold so dear as you use. So I invite you to join me in working towards Dr. King's vision for our world by getting proximate, being curious, staying engaged, valuing relationship and practicing acceptance and love. These are lofty practices, but so worth trying. As Ayana reminded us, we can start small and keep growing the skill day by day. My friends, may we continue to work towards becoming beloved community by listening to and answering the call of love.